The first passage today is from Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7, and that'll be on page 4 of the Pew Bibles. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And the next passage is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 20, on page 1845. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace and be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Thanks, Ruby. If you're newer, my name is Nick Gibson. I'm the senior pastor here at High Point. We're doing a series on what it means to be a human being as revealed by God, demonstrated in Christ, and formed um, in Christian salvation. <clears throat> These last two sermons in this series, you know, I say they're going to be practical, but I'm going to be preaching them, you know. Um, but I want to focus on two things. This week I want to focus on human capacity. What are we really capable of as human beings? And next week, I want to focus on our capacity for healing. What can we actually recover from as human beings? And the reason why I pick these two as the last topics in the series, because normally I just pick a passage of the Bible, preach whatever it seems to be there. The reason why I've stopped to do this topical series is because sometimes you've got to like bring everything together around a topic and like try to clarify what we believe. Um, my concern both in the realm of healing and in the realm of human capacity is that as long as I have been a pastor, I've seen a profound decline in the public acknowledgement of what human beings are actually capable of. There is a certain forgetting because we've all taken a vacation from history until, well, until the invasion of Ukraine, I guess, in a certain way, um, in terms of, like, human brutality. Most of us have been mildly protected from it. And a lot of us ideologically and publicly have been taking a vacation from horror for 40 to 50 years. And so the negative, what humans are capable of, has been hidden from a lot of us, functionally. Positively, there's been just a really long-term decline in what we seem to publicly believe people, people are capable of. Thomas Sowell, who's in his 90s, I think, think now, remembers living in Harlem in like the 40s as a little kid. And he'd get up in the morning at like 5 a.m. and walk down and buy a nickel newspaper and you could sleep in Central Park. Nobody's going to mess with you. There wasn't urine in the hallways 
in public housing. Like, every, people are expected to behave. Like, in New York City. Like, this idea that, like, you can't expect either the poor or the rich or people of this ethnicity or that educational level to master the basics of being a human being is something that we've increasingly believed in our popular psychology. The idea that the most important thing for human beings is not for us to develop as we are capable, but to express what's already inside of us, a view that's sometimes called expressive individualism, has become a religion that we all believe in and don't even know the name of because we've absorbed it rather than really come to believe it. There's no reason to believe it's true. It's just easy. Until you have to deal with the consequences of it. I want to say five things quickly about human capacity this morning that we need to understand as Christian believers. The first is that our great capacities in our humanity, not our individuality. The thing that makes us dignified, great, designates our potential, makes us capacious or large creatures, is that we're humans, not that we're the, the particular human that we are. What makes me great is not that I am Nick Gibson. What makes me great is that I am a human being, bearing the image of God and being called to live in his likeness. My individuality flows out of that. The only reason there's any individuality at all in me is because I am a human being and the same as all of you. And all of you the same as me, right? Um, this is why when we understand the spirituality of the gospel as Paul preaches all through the first 11 chapters of Romans, he gets to chapter 12, and after he talks about what it means to be transformed in the renewing of your mind, he says one of the first acts of this is, he says, by the grace given me, meaning in the greatness of his apostleship as the apostle Paul. That's a grace. It's a gift. It's not—I'm not special, though he is special. He's not special, right? By the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment— what? How should we differentiate ourselves? What's, what's the reason by which some of us are better than others, so to speak? He said, think of yourself as sober judgment. That is, what would it mean to be totally sober in how we saw ourselves in relationship to other people? In accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. So it differentiates us as our closeness to the capacity for martyrdom. And that being the only significant differentiation, Christianly speaking, it's still a gift. So you, I can say, I'm different than so-and-so because so-and-so has a lot more faith in me. But it's a gift. That is, they should have compassion on me and help bring me up into their faith, right? One of the things that we, we can easily f lose track of is in the differentiation between human beings, how much different we are than non-human beings. So, for example, um, Herbert Nietzsche is the greatest free diver that's ever lived, as far as we know. Okay? He has broken both the 700 and 800 foot barrier. Okay, so free diving, in case you don't know, is you take a breath and you dive down. There's no equipment. You just swim. You understand? He's broken the 800 foot barrier. Only person ever to do that. Closest person to him is like 575 feet. Okay? He can, he has 32 world records. He can hold his breath for nine minutes. Now, I also, when I pastored in Florida, did a little free diving myself. I have once broken the 40-foot thermocline. I have no known records, and I can hold my breath for approximately 45 seconds, unless I trip. Right? Now, there's a big difference between me and, and, um, and Herbert, but besides the fact that he's really handsome. Um, he's also a pilot and unmarried. No known girlfriend. I don't understand. Okay, he's Australian. Okay, so— <laughs> I want to make a joke about me dating him, but we'll just keep him. Okay, so then there's a gorilla. Like a gorilla, like, I don't know if you know this, gorillas can't swim. Okay, it's partly body density. They have so much muscle, they can't, like, get it buoyant, but also they can't coordinate the swimming. They can't do it. Like, they can't be like, oh, you do this, and I'm going to kick. They just, they literally, their brains, they can't make that happen, okay? Now, but they can hold me underwater indefinitely if necessary, right? That's a thing that, we, that they can do. Okay, and, and, but also if you flip it, you're like, well, but Nick, you've been practicing preaching. Herbert's been spending time free diving. It's true. I've broken the 90-minute barrier. I can speak for 30 plus seconds on a single breath, and I can hold people's attention on average for just over nine minutes. So Herbert will start getting bored about the time he has to let out and take a second breath. And then he's never given a sermon as far as I know. He can speak in intelligible sentences. And for heaven's sakes, he can hold his breath for over nine minutes. Should just be, right? The gorilla can't learn to speak, can tear off your arms if you give him too much good eye contact during the sermon, and he can definitely drag me off stage if necessary. Now, 
the point here is, right, is that there's two things to recognize in terms of human being, generally speaking, right? The first is, is that there's an enormous difference between human beings and all other forms of life, even though those forms of life have a certain kind of dignity. There's a huge difference, right? The difference between the least remarkable human being and the most remarkable human being is closer than the difference in the least remarkable human being and the closest next creature. If that lowest remarkable human being develops in the human capacity he's been given as a human being. The terrifying thing about human beings is no matter how remarkable the gift of our creation is, the, our, the, the, the speciality of our individuality, how, what you were born with, right? If you do not develop the human capacities, it is amazing how degraded a human being can become so that their behavior is not just indistinguishable from animals, it's worse. And of course, a bigger tragedy and much more damnable because it's moral in nature, right? But also, there's a hu- there is a huge difference between human beings, but a lot of that difference is not just gifting. It's development. And we've lost track of that, right? People who have learned how to be truly an expert in something can understand this. When you give a lot of your time and your effort to be great at something, and then that you compare yourself to somebody who hasn't, that capacity difference is enormous. Even if the person you're comparing yourself to could have been better at you at that thing if they would have gone through the development you went through. Right? So there's a number of things I've tried to like get really good at in my life. And almost anybody, for some of them at least, could be better than me. But they didn't do the developmental process. So I'm better than them. Does that make sense? One of the things to remember is not only is there a huge developmental difference between us and animals, and therefore our dignity, but the difference between human beings isn't mainly individuality. It's development. Human beings, without much remarkable individual gifting, if they embrace the reality of how much humans are capable of, how we can develop and grow, how deeply we can change, and how profoundly we can transform, if we will believe that, and mainly in this generation, if we will let God tell us that, and we believe him, rather than pop psychology, pop evolutionary pseudo-philosophy, and pop neurological determinism, if we will get past all the nonsense that says we really shouldn't expect much from ourselves or anybody else, and we allow God to tell us what we can be, we won't say, well, I'm not as remarkable as so-and-so, so I'm not even going to try. We will pursue God to allow him to develop the capacities in us which are human in nature that are incredible and profound and special and mysterious so that we can become what we were meant to be and not allow the idiosyncrasies of somebody else's birth to destroy our capacity to walk into our own destiny, which is happening constantly around us. Now, what we are that's great has to do with these Realities, not these. What makes us special is our humanity, our reasonable soul, our capacity for provident emotion, our ability for moral judgment. In fact, all of these things that are part of our humanity make this individuality possible. But things like our marginal superiority, like, I mean, so I'm a, I'm a basketball player and so is LeBron James, okay? <laughs> now there is a, there's a, there's a pretty strong marginal superiority between us. I'm not going to say who's better, But there's a pretty significant one, okay? But the reality is, is like, my dog is way worse at basketball than I am worse than LeBron James. Do you understand? Like, my internal capacity, yeah, there's, there's a marginal superiority. Like, for example, I have this, this, this uh, daily carry knife I carry around me, okay? Now, you would, you don't know how much this costs. Turns out it's not cheap. My wife bought it for me for Christmas. It's my, it's my classy knife, okay? Now, I have another one that's like, was like 40 bucks, okay? It's my throwaway. T- if I'm going somewhere, I don't know what's going to happen. It's like the one I take. Who knows what I'm going to have to cut with that thing, right? Now, not a, not a human. It's just like, you know, it's a tool, okay? And so here's the thing. They're like $120 difference in what they cost. But if you showed both knives to somebody 400 years ago, they would have thought both of them were from space. You understand? And like, we need to recognize that about ourselves. Like, we, we're walking around with the immortal creatures all the time, and you don't realize how amazing all the other human beings are. And so we, like, 
gossip about them and we ride them down and we treat them terribly and we have no idea what it is we're talking about because our amazingness, the dignity of our being is so ordinary to us. And we live in the fog of this mythology of what we're not. Right? Now, what that means is, in terms of the gospel, is humanity is an amazing thing, not individuality. In a modern culture where we've lost our sense of what humanity is, we spend most of our time thinking internally about ourselves and how we are or are not an original individual. And that will destroy you psychologically, mentally, and in terms of your soul, and in terms of your morality. Because it'll root your identity in just all the wrong things, right? And um, in that sense, there's a, there's a kind of way of wanting to be special, or to find yourself, or to be an individual, that's incredibly destructive, right? As opposed to, like when I was learning how to be a basketball player, I wasn't trying to be a special kind of basketball player. I was just trying to be as good a basketball player as I could be. And because of that, I developed an individuality as a kind of player. I was different than every other player that's ever lived in a certain kind of way, right? Mostly my inability to make jump shots. But, but, but I, was my, I became myself by becoming a general thing, right? To become the best you, that you, be, you try to become the best human being you can be. And then you will become the perfect you, right? Secondly, is humility is true individuality, not, is tr is true individuality not, not celebrity. You see, if you understand that the thing that matters about human beings is our humanity, then the marginal difference is irrelevant to value and purpose and like shared life. And so you, Christians, I, I know this may sound like an overstatement, but Christians just don't believe in celebrity. Um, there, there was this, um, when John Wesley was ministering in the 1700s in England, um, there was this politician that got really, really, really upset at him because at, at a meeting, the politician thought that Wesley gave a good sermon, and so he came up, and he was a very well-known person. Everybody in the room knew who he was, and Wesley was talking to this widow in her 80s. And when this guy walks up, he doesn't stop talking to the widow and talk to him. He just kept talking to the widow until he was done. And by then, the politician is stormed off because how dare he, right? And, and the thing is, because to Wesley, what's the difference? Who's this guy? Right? Like, right, so to a Christian who understands human being, there are no celebrities, right? There's no like, oh, well, you know, this person sings so well, or that person's in charge of this, or that person leads the university, or that person's a football player at the UW team. It, it, none of that matters. You understand? They're marginal differences. Well, humility matters, realizing that whatever grace God has given you, that is what you're to pour out sacrificially for the good of others, not the thing that makes you separate and better and special and privileged, right? Third is, is that you are yourself in abundance because you're a human being. So many people live in the personal brokenness of internal, the internal fear of personal scarcity. They're never going to be enough. They're never, they aren't enough. They're never going to be enough. They're not good enough to do something. They're never going to make this dream. They're never, right? And that's really sad because um, what we, we underestimate things like one of the most valuable and heroic things you can do to another person is love them. You see, when we get focused on individuality, we lose the reality that the most fundamental great, fundamentally great things in human existence are, seem very ordinary to us. And therefore, because we've been accustomed to celebrity and to exoticness, right? Everything has to be new and special, right? And disposable. Things like loving another person, listening as somebody shares how they're thinking or feeling, right? Doing a basic job that needs to be done. These are the great things about human beings, not the marginal differences that create celebrity. Now, that's not to say that when people use big gifts that they've received marginally, and they develop them as much as possible, and that brings enormous goods into people's lives, that that's not meaningful. But they haven't done anything more than they were supposed to. Right? Like, if I could become a CEO of some huge company and create, like, a water filtration system so that not a single child died of dysentery for the rest of human existence, I wouldn't be a celebrity. I would have just done what I was capable of doing. Right? Um, Fourth, you, whatever you think you is, has a huge range of potential, right? If human beings are the most developmentally capable creatures in the world, you can develop enormously more than you could possibly imagine in all kinds of directions, 
There are 50,000 potential yous. There is no such thing as like the you that has to be exactly the way you are. Or if you're like, well, this is me. You're just gonna have to deal with it. Well, you, you actually chose to be that you in an idiosyncratically like personal way. You, that doesn't have to be the you that's you. You picked that. So don't pretend like, you know, nobody can criticize me because I'm myself. It's a ridiculous view of human beings. You could be a thousand different human beings. You can invest your development in all kinds of different directions, and you can develop as a person. And so there are 10,000 possible future yous or present yous. There is no such thing as just the you. See, that's the lie of, of, uh, of, of expressive individualism, right? There's only one me, the me that I, I'm sensing inside myself as I turn internally. And now the only thing I can do as a self is to authentically express whatever I find in there, and that's me. No, that is the like ether of the undeveloped you. That has no necessary relationship to the present or future you. Like, yeah, there are things in, in there that are connected to who you are that aren't going to change a lot, like things about your temperament, right? Like if you have a highly sensitive temperament versus a highly insensitive one, or if you like tend towards mental openness or like structure, or like those kinds of things probably aren't going to change. There are differences in those ways. But your moral capacities, what you think is right, true, and beautiful, how you work through different relationships, what you're capable of and have made yourself incapable of, those are all developmental. And for some of us, developing is harder than for others. I'm going to get to that a lot more next week when I talk about healing. But we have to start with the good news of the possibility of transformation and development, right? Secondly is we, what we as human beings want is more capacity and less responsibility, okay? You got to start with why we're so avoidant of this. Like, why is it that human beings in every generation come up with a global mythology of why we're not responsible for ourselves? Why we don't have to be godly, right? You, you see this um, right as the fall happens in chapter 3 in Genesis, right? God makes these human beings with an enormous capacity that has not been realized yet. And what happens is they sin to get more capacity, right? The serpent says, look, if you eat this fruit, you'll be like gods, knowing good and evil. That's not offered as like some moral thing, because here's the thing. They already know one principle about good and evil. Don't eat from that tree. See, they're not interested in the moral application of the knowledge of good and evil. They're interested in what it'll get them. It'll make them like God. But you see, the serpent isn't going to tell them that he's lying to them through a double meaning, what being like God means, right? Because he's a deceiver. And so when they buy into it, they're buying into it that they want the knowledge of good and evil for some other purpose than to know the knowledge of good and evil. They want some kind of power. And then when it comes time for, for Adam to take some responsibility for what he did, he says to God, this woman that you gave me is responsible. Simultaneously blaming up the ladder and down the ladder. It's her fault, and it's your fault for giving her to me. He, they'll do anything to get more capacity, and they'll do anything to get away from responsibility. And this plays out all through the scriptures, right? When, when God confronts Cain on the next page, he says, why are you angry, Cain? Why is your face downcast? If you do what's right, will you not be accepted? But if you don't do what's right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, and you must master it. What's the logic there, right? What's the implicit reason? God, God is saying, listen, the reason you're so resentful and upset at your brother is because you won't do the right thing. You won't take responsibility for your own life. You won't do what's right. And so I didn't approve of it because what you did was wrong. And so you see, in Cain's mind, God is to blame, and he's going to take it out on Abel because he won't do what's right. And so he takes his capacity, instead of like cutting some more wheat and offering it the best of it to the Lord, he takes a rock and beats his brother to death with it because he's got capacity. He just won't embrace his human responsibility. Right? You can think of these two views of responsibility and capacity this way, right? In wor the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? In us wants this. High capacity, virtually no responsibility. That's what we want, right? But what Scripture teaches is there's a harmonious relationship between capacity and responsibility. It's not a direct relationship, right? Because you have to get to a certain point of moral knowledge before you can be really responsible and be held responsible for things. And as you get to the point where you really see the effect of your behavior, your responsibility grows up faster than your capacity because you know what you're doing is doing, right? 
But you can see that there's this harmonious relationship between responsibility and capacity. This is reality, whether we like it or not. And this is what we really want, but that we can never have. Right? In Deuteronomy, the Lord says it this way, after he gives the law, right? What's the law? He's giving it to a people who've been denying their capacity for hundreds of years. And he says, listen, this is what you're going to do. You're going to live responsibly. You're going to act justly. You're going to worship me rightly. We're going to have a relationship, but it's going to be rooted in these, these moral realities of what you're capable of as human beings. You're going to treat each other right. You're going to treat my creation right. You're going to treat me right, right? And he says this. He says, then the Lord God, your God will make you the most prosperous in all your work of your hands and the fruit of your womb and the young of your livestock and the crops of your land. The Lord will again delight in you and make you prosperous just as he delighted in your fathers. If you obey the Lord your God and keep his commands and decrees that are written in the book of this law and turn to the Lord your God with all your hearts, with all your soul, right? You develop internally, personally, in your heart, in your soul, your passions, your desires, your loves, your affections. He says, now what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. You see, he knows that the first lie human beings are going to tell themselves is they're going to find a way to say, I can't do this. And therefore, I don't have to try. Listen, let's start with this. Just because you can't do something doesn't mean you don't have to try. Okay? If there was, a, if there was an army coming from Milwaukee to Madison that had taken over the eastern half of the country, and they were going to come and kill all of the women and children in this city, and I couldn't stop them, I would still get every gun and every bit of ammo that I had, and I would go out there and I would try. Or at least that's what I should do. Right? Just because you can't do something doesn't mean you shouldn't try, first of all. And part of the reason we have to believe that is because many of the things we are, we are capable of, we don't believe we're capable of. And if we won't try them, even when we think we can't do them, we will not be courageous enough to be present for the victory. Right? Now, that's why as we read through the New Testament and the rest of Scripture, these themes keep coming up about embracing our capacity to be there, to do what's right, that, things, that, that being godly isn't beyond us, that God has made us capable of it. Even though in terms of sin, in terms of perfection and righteousness to set us right with God, we're never going to make it, right? Scripture is very clear about that. But the idea that we can just like throw up our hands and be like, well, you know, whatever. You know, let's sin more so that God will give us more grace and forgiveness. Right? What does Paul respond to? He's like, absolutely not. May that never be. That, you can't think, what he means is you can't think that way. No, we have to be committed to these ideas like faithfulness. Like, I can do the right thing as long as it takes. Because I'm made in the image of God, and he has always done the right thing as long as he's existed. Or stewardship. I have the capacity to live in line with my responsibility. The things I have to invest in the good, I can invest in the good as long as it takes. And remember, the metaphors Jesus uses is there's a master who goes away for a what? A long time, right? Longer than you would wish to have to do it for. Right? And godliness, that we are made not to be gods, but to act like God. That is, morally and spiritually in all these capacities that make us human. Right? So the third is, because of that problem in our desire, we tend to use our capacity to evade and avoid responsibility. So all this human capacity that makes us this very good creation of God— where we bear God's image and we have the capacity to do incredibly great things, the problem with that is, is that you can also use that capacity to fight God and to lie to yourself to tell yourself you don't have that responsibility. And Scripture teaches that that's exactly what we do. So when Paul gives the longest exposition of the gospel in the Bible, he starts in chapter 1 after he says what the gospel is. And he says, listen, that one of the biggest problems is not just that people don't believe the gospel, it's they intentionally evade the gospel's truth so they don't have to believe it. They come up with incredibly complex and things that feel really believable so that they don't have to know about God, so they don't have to know about themselves, so they don't have to know about their responsibility. And so in Romans 1, there's a lot in Romans 1 about sexual immorality, and that tends to pull our attention to it. But if you read it just for how many times does God talk about people not wanting to know the truth? Well, it's like seven. Right? He says that they suppressed the truth. And what was clearly seen, they didn't want to see. So that men are without excuse because it is clearly seen, but they don't want to see it, right? And so therefore, their minds became futile. They, their thinking didn't work right. And so their foolish hearts were then darkened. And they claimed to be wise, but they were really fools. They exchanged the truth for a lie. 
and they didn't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. You see, all those are what Calvin called the noetic effect of the fall, which changed our thinking, our feeling, our hearts, our belief, so that we could convince ourselves that all of the irresponsibility we wanted to embrace like a warm bath is true. So that we can just express our individuality, and that's what life is about. Right? It's important to recognize that once that happens in us, that all human knowledge gets ordered to that end. Not because any form of human knowledge is bad. I mean, all knowledge in itself is intrinsically good. But when it's put together with our desire to avoid responsibility, we use it for those ends, and it goes bad. Whether it's philosophy, right? In 2 Corinthians, Paul says we break down arguments and pretensions that put themselves up against the truth of God, right? Or in theology, listen, belief about God is one of the best ways to destroy belief about God, right? By corrupting it or creating idolatry or creating forms of legalism, you can use religion to destroy faith, and you can use beliefs about God and religion to destroy people's capacity to actually interact with, face, talk to, have a relationship with, learn to obey and know God. Science is another thing that has always been used to create moral determinism in human beings. To say, well, you know, nothing can be helped. I'll get to that in just a second. This is true in the humanities, right? The, the arts, our understanding of human beings, right? I mean, just think about the TV shows you've watched and the movies, right? What do they do? They make art that makes evil look good and good look evil. So that as you watch three or four seasons of it, you're like, yeah, I'm on the side of the adulterous person who abandoned her family and did the blah, 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 blah. Right? Because the whole thing is shaped to show you the good things about that person and to put aside the bad things about that person. And we forget, like, if you watch a two-hour movie, a, a main character can murder a number of people and you'll still be emotionally cheering for them at the end if the story is told well. Instead of being like, how the guy dies? He's a murderer. Right? Because we get pulled into stories. And so our artists, our storytellers are developing us. They're shaping us. Right? And of course, so are our algorithmic feeds in our technologies. And this is also true in social sciences. Even though we try to, we try to like learn about what, how we are humans together, there's all kinds of ways in which ideology, financing, and fashion can find their way into things like psychology and sociology. And what should be a good realm of knowledge can be used by people to excuse themselves from responsibility. One of the, um, so the, the three big ways this happens, and so religion is a good example. Let's pick on religion first before we take a shot at science, right? Um, the big three ways human beings use our desire not to submit to God to destroy forms of human knowledge so that we don't have to be responsible is by fate, idolatry, and corruption. So fate's the idea. It had to be this way. The stars, the neurons, right? So um, one of the authors on this I really like, who is an atheist, is Theodore Dalrymple. He wrote a book called Admirable Evasions where he quotes um, from the second act of King Lear where he says, um, I think Edmund says, um, you know, what a convenient thing, whoremaster man, to— ascribe his goatish disposition to the stars, right? To say that, like, the reason I commit adultery is because we're under the stars of Sagittarius, okay? Friends, I, I know this sounds like a simplification. There is not much difference between that and saying that my brain chemistry helped me commit adultery, or I'm genetically predisposed towards it, or whatever other form of functional determinism you want to choose. The fact is, is that um, genes are—genetics uh, is a little bit like being a sophomore in college. Like, over the last 20 years, we knew just enough to be dangerous. You know what I mean? Like, we were finding the gene for things—the the, the gene for homosexuality is, is the best example of this, right? Like, we spent millions of dollars mapping the human genome, and a huge part of that was, like, to find the gay gene. It just is one. And it's not because it's not genetic. It's because that's not how genes work. Just, nobody still knows, right? Like, Genes, like, talk to each other, and they change through epigenetics, and they're multi-coded along, like, different things, and, like, they're way more complicated than we thought, right? And they're all interactive, but that also means that what's really being created in genetics in most cases is tendencies and opportunities and possibilities and ways that are easier to grow or harder to develop, not things that are fundamentally instantiated. Like, like your weight is not as certain as your eye color, and who you love is not nearly as certain as your weight, and what TV shows you're going to watch is not nearly as focused as the other things. 
Like there's, there's a huge differentiation in genetics, but, but on the popular level, we're like, yeah, we have genes for stuff. We just do things. That's why I drink the way I do. That's why I have sex the way I do. That's why I yell at people the way I do. Like I'm just genetically predisposed to outbursts of anger. You might as well say that because you're a Scorpio, you're resentful. Like in, in the scriptures, they come from thousands of years ago that came from times in which astrological certainty and the fates were fundamental to human self-understanding. The scriptures are like, that's always called baloney on that stuff. Yeah. Right? And they do still today, and they're just as right now as when they rejected the astrology of, like, ancient Babylon or the concept of the fates among the Greeks. I mean, there was no greater man in ancient Greece, literarily, than Oedipus, but the fates said he would marry his mother. And so he did everything he could not to, and yet he still did. That's the concept, the fates. Friends, that's what half of us believe, that we belong to the fates. There's a huge difference between living by the fates and knowing you're under the divine providence of a good father working for your good. Idolatry is another example where you, we, we make up our gods so that they'll do what they want, what we want, so that the sacrifice we make is something we don't want anyway, and the thing we get is the stuff we wanted all along with no responsibility to ourselves. I mean, think about this. Think about the, all the idols of the ancient world. They, there was no human responsibility, right? You worshiped Baal or Molech by taking the child you didn't want to feed that had come out of the womb as a girl and you didn't want another girl, so you burned her alive so that the god Molech would give you more cattle. Right? So you could kill the human you didn't want a parent, and you could get more money. Do you see how that works? All idolatry is functioning on that logic in some way. Right? And that's, and, and that's one of the reasons why God doesn't allow idolatry. Partly it's because the gods are detestable, but it's also because the entire dynamic and superstructure of idolatry is detestable. Right? And this is also true of corruption, right? Like, when Jesus came on the scene, he was not rebuking idolaters. He was rebu rebuking believing Jews. And yet he said to the Pharisees that they'd become moralists and destroyed the true faith, and to the Sadducees that they'd been corrupt with Rome, right, and, and um, colluded with a foreign pagan government, and so had destroyed the faith. Right? Corruption within the faith can destroy the faith as much as anything else, right? And you see, this, this can also happen in our understanding or practice of, for example, science, right? We can believe a popularized, scientifically false view of science that we've constructed that tells us because of our neurology or our genetics or the combination of both or something that the fates govern our behavior and nothing can really be expected of us because people can't really change. Or idolatry, where we will sell our souls to science if it will give us the technologies we want to get what we want, no matter what we destroy, including our own humanity or the humanity of others. Or corruption, where I will, I will misuse my reception of science or my creation of it because of other incentives, whether financial or emotional or wanting to feel like I'm the moral high ground or something, because of how I use it. Like throwing people out of their livelihoods because they don't do the medical thing you want them to do or being pressured into giving people antibiotics for stuff that they don't need antibiotics for because they're angry about it and you don't want people angry at you, right? And we all face these, and in every realm of human knowledge, we are constantly under the threat of entering into this corruption. And if you don't know that about yourself, you can't escape it. Do you understand? It'll, it'll, it'll eat on you without you realizing it. Okay, I need to go faster on this last two. Fourth is God has made incredible provision for our development. All through the scriptures, God makes so clear that he has made us to develop and he has made provision for our development. So in 1 Peter, after Peter talks about the beauty of the gospel of Christ for 12 verses and the resources that exist in that, he says, now, therefore, he looks at you and he goes, listen, you're capable of this. Based on the truth that you just heard, he said, now prepare your minds for action. Which, which literally means gird up the loins of your mind. So if you imagine like you wear like, like, like this kind of robe and it's not very athletic, but you're going to have to do like a physical task. You have to like tie it up high enough that your legs can move freely, but that it doesn't show your 
junk, right? So you gird it up to here. Does that make sense? And she's like, you like, tie yourself up. Like, you need to get ready. Like, put your gym clothes on because you're going to play, right? If you, if, you don't, if you don't understand this, what happens is you come to life in like a suit when you should be in like, like gym clothes because it's going to be work. Like, us becoming what we were meant to be is enormously sweaty. Like, we, we, the, the phrase we use at High Point Church is gracious striving. Right? Like, this language is full of effort, and yet it's all gracious. The, the, the work it does in us is, is a gift of God. He makes it work by His Spirit and by the humanity that He's given us and by the work of redemption and through the regeneration of Christ and all of that. But we're still—Paul said one time, I'm, I'm working like a woman having a baby for Christ to be formed in you. Like, the work of ministry— Helping others develop spiritually was so hard. Paul's like, I feel like I'm having a baby. Now, I understand some of you women are like, well, what does he know? You know, like, well, all you got to do is hear the screams from another room, okay? And you have some idea of the metaphor, right? And, and, but he says, here's where here it goes. He says, listen, but just as he who called you is holy, that is God. So be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I'm holy. Do you see how that's the baseline of it? That's what God believes you're capable of. Just as he is holy, so be holy in all you do. In all you do, just as he is holy. Right? Or in Ephesians 1, after three chapters of the beauty of the gospel, Paul's in prison suffering for that gospel. He says, listen, as a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. And he spends three chapters telling them what that looks like. There's all kinds of passages that have the same logic in them. Because of what Christ has done, and because of what you already are as a human being, and because of what can happen through faith, you can be holy. It doesn't matter if you're ever rich. It doesn't matter if you're ever great. It doesn't matter if you're ever any of those other things that idolatry gets you. What matters is, are you fully developed as a human being in all you are meant to be? That is, are you holy? That is, are you godly? That is the pinnacle of human being, is to participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption that is in the world, Second Peter says. Not winning in a sport or getting the job you wanted or being respected or not being attacked or— it is being holy. You can see this when Jesus is talking to his disciples. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain to the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Even the pagans do that. Therefore, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Right? We just read over that. Be perfect. What does that mean? It doesn't mean be perfect in his divine perfections of deity and like omnitemporality or something. No, it's be like him. In his personality, you can be complete, mature, full, the way you were meant to be. That's possible. And and Jesus is saying, not just that can happen. He's like, do it. Be it. You can. Now, part of the problem with this is that we, without even knowing it, want to be changed and developed in the ways our culture says people are changed and developed. And that never works for godliness. Okay? Shaping people into little political, I'll do whatever you tell me's, or little consumeristics, I'll buy whatever you tell me, or little social media compliance, I'll post whatever you tell me. Getting compliant people to do what you tell them is the opposite of what Jesus is making in his redemption. Do you understand? It's the opposite. Jesus is making martyrs. What is a martyr? A martyr is a person who looks at people telling them to do something, saying, I'm going to kill you if you don't do this. And that person says, I will not. I will not. Instead, I will tell you the truth so that after you kill me, you may see the truth of it and repent and be saved yourself. Do you understand how different that is? Listen, if you want to be the compliant little thing the culture wants to make you so you'll be the perfect little consumer and you can use your little, like, administrative health care, and like you can walk in a daze through a society and a life created for you, incapable of perceiving beauty or moral knowledge or the development of all these amazing things God has given you, fitting you for an eternal destiny, then just keep doing what our culture wants us to keep doing. Just keep, 
keep flipping through stuff and, and, and agreeing with everybody and, accept, and like avoiding scorn and not exerting yourself like something, somebody girding themselves up for battle. Like just keep doing that because we'll get more of it. It'll be great. I say that ironically, obviously. Right, but if, if we want to be, we have to actually allow God to develop us the way he wants to. And listen, this is no mystery. And look, I'll, I can even quote good science at you, right? Because like, remember, science in and of itself is good. All human knowledge is good, right? There's a whole field of like how people actually change. And it's not interact with apps, be told what to do, go to schools and sit in chairs. It's not that. We are embodied people who exist in communities, right, who function in certain ways. And so like here, this is just like a short list. There's, this could be like 50 things, but this is what fits on a slide. The little, literally why there's nine things is because I could fit nine things on a slide, right? So knowing yourself, pleasure development, learning to love what you do, small group effect being in a group of mutual coaching advice and social norms, like your friend group, right? Five to seven people. Companionship of excellence, being around peers who make you better. Hard commitments, laws that you pay if you transgress. Soft commitments, rules that you make for yourself and share with others. Environmental rituals, that is setting up the practices of success so you have the shape of life so that it's easier to succeed, right? Environmental rituals, um, fresh start moments. When, can, when do you get another try if you failed, right? And then identity confession. That is, who are you and why, and how do you confess it one to another, right? Now, here's the thing. Like, for God's sakes, like, that's all in the Bible. Look, just better. Like, it, it always frustrates me when people get so into, like, little life hacks of things, when, like, a, sh a shallower version comes out in the social sciences, and they're like, ooh, isn't that good? And you're like, dude, that's, like, literally in the entire Bible. Right? And when I say that, I'm not picking on social sciences, okay? I want you to understand that. S social science research cannot prove very robust things. Do you understand? Because it's science. You have to empirically prove it. The Bible is revelation. God can just explicitly say things. So God can say a lot more in revelation than we can prove scientifically because of the nature of how we know the thing. Do you understand? It's not a shot against science. It's just, it's really hard to prove stuff. But when they do prove these small effects, it— and you go, wait, these totally correlate with Scripture, except they're much richer in Scripture. We should go, oh, well, that's—yeah, I, I knew that. I mean, that builds my confidence a little bit, but I was already supposed to know that. And what we're already supposed to know is, is that this is how we change. We have to know ourselves, and we have to know ourselves theologically. Otherwise, we won't really know ourselves, right? Because we'll think we're our individuality, and then we'll just think we should express it, right? Or um, pleasure development. Part of, part of the reason Jesus says, obey, and then you'll realize that God is in this, right? Part of it is like we obey and we worship, we do things to grow in the right affections so that things that are hard to do become easier because we've learned how beautiful they are and we learn to love them. Same thing with small groups effect. We call that fellowship in the Bible. That is, you get people around you that you exchange with and you don't want to let them down, right? And you want to be more like them. And part of it is, they say, they say in psychology, is to get around people who are better than you, but not too much better than you. Right? Because there's, the, if you're around people who are like so beyond you, it can have a demoralizing effect. Because you're like, ugh. But if they're a little better than you, you're like, you, you live up into it. There was a study done, if like, if somebody in your dorm room had higher verbal scores, you did better verbally in your first semester in college. They don't know why. They tried to replicate it, and they couldn't make it happen artificially. It just happened naturally. Right? Similarly, all of these things are true all the way down. Hard commitments, church discipline. When the church goes, you can't be a Christian and do that, right? That's, that's a hard commitment, right? You said you're a Christian. Christians can't do that. And there's a cost if you do it and you won't repent. That has to happen. The church stops doing that. We stop doing what makes people change. Not even from the Bible. That's from science, right? Soft commitments, doctrine and moral commitments. I tell you I'm going to do this, right? Environmental rituals, worship, prayer, study, ordinances, fresh start moments. Christianity has so many fresh start moments because human beings— they fail a lot, right? But conversion, repentance, baptism, confession, communion, all of these are fresh start moments. Where we recognize we failed, we need a new start, we get one, right? And identity confession. You see, friends, all of these things, all of them form a shape of how we change and grow. The kind of development that God wants to bring about us in godliness comes about because we submit to the kind of ways human beings change for the good. And so it's not enough to say, I believe some of the things in the Bible. No. You need to study this book and figure out how it tells you to change. Because see, listen, if you say you believe that Jesus is Lord, but you don't want to come to worship, 
You don't, you're like, but I'm not going to pray. Well, the thing is, is like, you can't become your theology without prayer. It's actually a necessary part of it, right? Like, why, why are we supposed to fast? Why are we supposed to get, engage in a periodic discipline of overcoming our sensuality? Well, because we have to overcome our sensuality, and it's a good start because we love food, you know? And so one of the fears I have for the church is that even where people are theologically orthodox and we say we believe certain things correctly, we actually, because we don't listen to how the scripture says we have to be formed, we won't listen to how we're supposed to be developed, that we won't submit to its structures, then years go by and we wonder why things haven't changed. And then we think, you know what? Christianity doesn't work. And if Christianity doesn't work, the Bible can't be really true. And if the Bible isn't really true, then God can't really be real in the way it says. And this whole faith is probably wrong. And then we go, I'm deconstructing my faith. And then we say, I'm not a Christian anymore. And we think that we've grown, right? And instead, we've, we've torn out so much of the wiring God gave us that we don't know what kind of machine we are anymore. And so, to be the kind of people we were meant to be, we have to believe that God knows how we can be shaped. He has told us what we need to know, but also what we must do to experience that transformation. And he has poured out on us grace so we can never fail so much as to believe we have to give up. To know that every moment, at the moment of repentance, we can have a fresh start. That God builds fresh starts into our baptism, our like communion when we, ha- when we have the Lord's Supper together as the church periodically, so it's, there's an official time where you get a fresh start, but even momentarily, when you realize you're on the wrong track or you failed and you just pray and tell God you've made a mistake and you want to get back on the right track, he can give you a fresh start right then, right now. Hallelujah. And so within the envelope of grace, we're called to the sweaty work that will change us into the creatures we were meant to be. And we will not just find our full humanity. In it, you will find the destiny of your God-given individuality, which is a divine gift, not a arbitrary self-creation. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we pray that you'd help us to be a people of your whole counsel, a people of, who've learned to obey everything that you've commanded, a people for whom our baptism governs our identity, a people who know that you have a gracious attitude towards us, a people who know that there is, there's no way to fail ourselves out when we are trying to get on the path. We know that, we want to be a people that know that you would rather us try and fail a thousand times than not try. And we have been, received a history in the scriptures of a people who did almost nothing but fail and who you never quit on because of your long-suffering love. We pray that you would help us to aspire to this thing you call perfection, real maturity, completeness, us as we were meant to be, that we would believe it's possible in ourselves and in others, and that we would call people up into their destiny, and that it would create great joy for them and for the salvation of many, and for real life and joy around us, and that it would make us and our neighbors fit for eternity, and that it would win over even our enemies. Help us to be such people in Jesus' name.